It's the 30A Show, your beach-happy podcast, brought to you by 30A Cottages and Concierge, with properties in Rosemary Beach, Seacrest, Seagrove, Seaside, and Watercolor. Online, 30acottages.com. Here's your host, Corey. I got into these guys a long time ago. We threw them on 30A Radio, and they have not come off since. Many ask, who are they? Where are they from? And do they ever come to the States? We are going to jam to their music behind our interview today. It's the new Master Sounds. Today we have Simon, their drummer. They're from the UK, the Leeds area. And they play here way more than you know. Setting this interview up with you, Simon, you asked if we were at the top of Florida near Alabama, and you nailed it. Right. Um, Yeah, top left on the map. Top left on the map. You guys take that I-10 corridor, and when you're in the States, you you do a lot of shows and utilize I-10 to get to New Orleans and back down towards Miami. Uh, where are your favorite spots to play in the United States? Uh, with New Orleans, we play a couple of times a year, um, usually, for at least for the past decade. But we, we rarely drive there. Um, we usually fly into New Orleans and then fly out again in a slightly bedraggled state five days later. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the new Master Sounds celebrating 20 years together. Can you believe that you've put up with Joe and Eddie and uh, Pete that long? No, no it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I, I remember getting to the point where I'd, I'd been an adult long enough for me to be able to look back one decade and then think, wow, 10 years. And I was I was a grown-up at the beginning of the 10 years, and now 10 years have elapsed. That doesn't seem right. But 20... I guess you just lose the ability to count, really. And then with even larger numbers, like, you know, the size of the galaxy, we can't even imagine them, can we? But I, I, uh, I, I, we've had a lot of fun and we've, we've sort of ended up feeling like a, a semi-functional family rather than, rather than co-workers. Because with that kind of amount of time, plus the intimacy of what's involved with being in a band, which is traveling together and living under under each other then you can't help but um become close and and the only analogy that makes sense really is family i think mm-hmm. uh, also because you don't choose your in a way you don't choose your bandmates like the band works because of happy coincidence and you know the music works but it's a bit like having a brother you didn't pick the brother as a friend so we we've we've got this relationship which is which is more like brothers than friends and there's a lot of love and there's also a lot of irritation as well you know um, mm-hmm. but but we know each other so well that we can we can kind of head off any really nasty conflicts quite early on nip them in the bud um and you know what if one person witnesses somebody else winding up the third person, <laughs> then they can just step in before it starts to get too unpleasant. And, yeah, and that you can send them to time out, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, it's like we, we shift be- between having the role of the irritating younger brother or the, you know, the concerned parent. Um, so we all play those roles at different times. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, so back to the 20 years, can you remove yourself from being a musician or in a band? And what are the bands out there that have been around for 20, 30 years that you followed that you always tell yourself, I cannot believe that band has been together for 20 years? Oh, well, sort of turning your question upside down, 
um, because I can't immediately think of an answer to the one you actually asked me. I, I, I did make a note that the Beatles weren't, weren't even together for 10 years. Wow. And, and I thought, oh, right. Okay, so they managed to achieve all of that in way less than half the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but um, bands who are still going, I guess. Uh, well, you've got the Grey Boy All-Stars um, who... They're, I guess if, there's, if there is an American equivalent of the new Master Sounds, in a way, it's the Grey Boys. And okay. I think they're celebrating their 25th anniversary this year, Okay, which um, I should, probably shouldn't mention because it takes the emphasis away from us because it's obviously more impressive to have done 25. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they, um, yeah, I, but they haven't, I, they've not been doing that as intensely as we have because... For them, I think that that band has been more of a side project. That they they come together a few times a year to do special stuff, and then they do their own thing. Whereas for us, Master Sounds has been pretty much the main thing for all of us for for that whole time. Where was your first gig? Our, our first gig is the new Master Sounds, which involved Eddie, Pete, and I, and a, the original Hammond player who's called Bob. Um, that occurred in Leeds at a, at a club called The Underground in, I believe, February 1999. Okay. And uh, so that, yeah, that's over 20 years, isn't it? It's 20 years and six months ago. Um, and we had a horn section uh, and we were playing a mixture of Meters covers and Jimmy McGriff tunes from an album called Electric Funk. And then we were also playing some of Eddie's original songs that he had written in in that kind of style. And we played maybe an hour um, to to an audience who come for a club night to dance to DJs playing that kind of music, and they they enjoyed having a, a live band as an interlude to that. So that that was our first. That was really why we formed the band because the DJs said. Um, we we want a live band in the middle of our club night. Uh, and honestly, uh, if if I read this correctly, that first gig uh, it was an hour, but Eddie's guitar solo was fifty five minutes. <laughs> well, he did. He he packed a lot of notes into those really long <laughs> solos as well, so they can sometimes yeah. seem longer. Um, but um, we we did used to make the songs themselves quite short. Right, um, because we, the model that we had was the the, the vinyl seven inch single, which mm-hmm. which only lasts for three and a half minutes per side. Yeah, when we first came to the states, that that those were the tunes we were playing. They they had arrangements that lasted three and a half minutes, and so it was fine when we were opening because we only had forty five minutes as a slot. But as soon as we had to do our own show, we realised we'd suddenly run out of material. Mm-hmm. And that was when we got talked into opening it up and stretching it out and um, learning how to jam. And that's where we kind of fell in love with the band is 
you, you have traditional bands that'll put those three minute songs out, like you said, but in, in your case, you're missing out on six minutes of amazing solos. And it, it's such a great band just to put on in the background, but you end up turning it up too loud. It's just a really, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, yeah, well, we, we, we didn't think that anyone would want to hear us noodling around like that and extending it because it felt it felt a bit self-indulgent and so it was it, it, it was just a gradual surprise and an eye-opener to us that that was the thing that people were actually liking about it um, and it did change us you know so we we do now have a wholly different approach but I, I still enjoy when, when when Eddie's putting a set together we've got those three and a half minute punchy arrangements that very rarely change or get extended and and they go in as sort of palate cleansers after the jams just to kind of for everyone to recalibrate their ears and sit up and take notice again mm-hmm. so we, we are conscious of of manipulating the mood of the audience and our, and our own as well because a big part of it is trying to make sure that we don't get bored. Some of the songs that you've done recently are probably more enjoyed by the ladies because they like to sing along or to see somebody singing, whereas the guys really like you guys to tear your instruments apart. <laughs> but, yes, this, there does seem to be some kind of very generally applicable kind of male-female preference. The, the one you've just stated, it, I would say that from my experience, that is generally true. I mean, there are... There are exceptions, of course. There are women that just love to watch the instrumental interplay. Right. And there are, and there are men who just don't understand what the point of it is without vocals. But they're in the minority. And um, we've found that there are a lot more women showing their faces in the crowd now that we've got Lamar at the front. Right. And he's a sexy guy as well you know let's it's not just his voice and 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 the lyrics i think that's drawing them in um he's got a kind of uh, you know a, a big sex appeal <laughs> in the middle of the stage while while the rest of us are sort of settling happily into middle age now we, we, he can take over as the young stallion <laughs> the days are tense and the nights are at school in uh, Louisiana and in Baton Rouge, uh, just north of New Orleans, uh, there was a band that started up around 96 and they came in playing a lot of instrumentals and they had horns and they would jam for a little while and uh, you kind of like... Hang on, is, is, it, is this Galactic? <laughs> it is Galactic. Yes, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm so glad I got it. I'm so, yeah. I, I hope I didn't spoil it. I thought I was meant to be guessing. Is that no, correct? but I'm glad you knew who it is because a lot of us would go and watch them and we're like, this is never going to work. And this is in 96, right? It, you're, yeah. you're, and, and there's no words, there's nothing. But then as they released the next album and the next album, you're like, okay, I kind of feel this now. And then they're world-class musicians uh stan moore is amazing and then and then they add in some singers now and they're releasing kind of like you guys are you're bringing in some artists to play along and it's just it just works yeah Uh, because well because the bedrock is there isn't it it's it's a 
we, we um, I was looking at, at some video. We did a, a two years, was it two years ago? Well, not the Jazz Fest just gone, but the one before. Um, we were at the Joy Theatre in New Orleans for our late night show. And we had uh, seven female singers. It was called The New Master Sounds Celebrate the Women of the Scene. Right. And we were we were celebrating the, the women of the scene who are currently singing on the scene. And we were also celebrating the women who performed the songs that we were doing covers of, you know, 40, 50 years before that, like Tina Turner and stuff. Um, and I, I just remember feeling like oh, this, this band just automatically makes the right kind of sounds for that music. Right. I mean, it's not what we do. Usually we play our own stuff and we play instrumental stuff and, and we, we move around the genres a bit. Um, like a lot of jam bands do. But with that soul funk thing, as soon as we start playing, it kind of sounds like the records are supposed to sound. And it's a nice feeling knowing that that's just, that's part of our DNA, you know. The Jazz Fest just before we were with you guys for the Alan Toussaint uh, weekend. Oh, yeah, that was, yes, because Alan had just, he'd he just recently passed. died a few months before, hadn't he? Yeah, and that was fantastic hearing you guys play the music, but bringing in people like Mark Broussard and I think Krasno sat in with you guys that night for a little bit. And, yeah, uh, and, and uh, the, the British p- piano player um, with the hat, it, it, that'll come back to me. Um, and also Ivan Neville joined in. Yep. It was fantastic. Uh, and I honestly, when I saw the late night schedule, I was like, yeah, we'll do two nights in a row at 2 a.m. with you guys. And you guys honestly played one of the nights till 5.30 or 6 in the morning. It was crazy. Yeah, that's that's the standard for, for those <laughs> weekends for us. Uh, um, uh, it's the way I always, if, we, if we've flown in from the UK, then I just have to look at it like this is breakfast time now because it's right. 8 a.m. back home. And I try not to get myself too upside down or you know acclimated in the, on the first night because i want to think of it as i'm going to go to bed wake up at midnight get up go to the venue start working at like 1 30 having had a cup of tea or and a bowl of cereal and then maybe half an hour later i'll do a shot of tequila just so i can get into the same mindset as the as the crowd who've been up for hours well, we've kind of caught up with uh, where you guys have been and uh, where the band's from, but let's talk about some albums. Uh, we're going to feature some music on this podcast uh, that you guys have put out. Uh, the more interesting of the albums for me, I like them all, but uh, the Nashville Sessions 1 and 2 have been very popular. Why does that kind of make sense for you guys to go to Nashville and record live? Uh, so it was initially it was suggested uh, by um, a, a friend of ours who was managing us at the time called Austin. I think he had got a contact at the studio and they knew that they did this this kind of analog tape live thing um, really well. And we happened to be on tour. Uh, we had a show in Nashville with a day off afterwards. So it was proposed. And I remember at the time just thinking, I don't really understand what the point of this is. <laughs> and I, I, I um, run a... a, a we have a record label that I've been running in, in the UK for the, for the band called One Note Records, which has been going since 2003. And that's just really a, a vehicle or a shell company for us to release our music. Um, and so it was kind of my decision at that point to, was I going to bankroll this project? And initially the idea was, okay, 
we're going to go in and we're going to make an album in one or two days. But I know that we can't, because generally what we do is we go in for a week and we write the tunes throughout the week. And by right. the end of the week, they've been recorded and we have a new album and a whole load of new songs. But I, I, I couldn't figure out, hang on, I know we can't write a whole album in, and record it in, in, a, in a day, right? So what is exact, what's this album for? And then we hit upon the idea of what we, like, there's lots of live recordings of what we've been doing for the past 15 years that have been made by tapers or been taken off soundboards in, in venues and things. Right. But, but none of them, uh, they're almost too clinical or too digital because they don't really have the warm, slightly crunchy, analog tape sound that you get from on all the records that we like from the 60s and 70s. The way that they were recorded is part of what makes it sound funky to us. Right. And so we were thinking, well, wouldn't it be great then if we do this, like a, it's, this is like a live show, but we get the sound we want uh, and we get all the, the, the freshness and the energy of the live performance uh, and we combine the two and then suddenly it made sense as a thing to do. And we also realized that since we, so, so, so that, so we didn't try to write any new material for that. We just thought, okay, let's just play the tunes that we play, some of which were released 10 or 15 years before on our earlier albums, but we now play them in a totally different way. Um, so let's capture the new way that we play those songs with that great old classic funky vintage sound. And we'll do it in front of an audience so that we've got some energy. And that's what, the Nashville session volume one captured so amazingly, I think. So we just, we, we went in at about 10 o'clock in the morning and we spent, I don't know, two or three hours just setting up the instruments and playing them and Eddie going back and forth to the control room and checking that the sounds that he was getting were, were right. And then we would do a little run through and record something. And then he would check that back because I think it was being mixed live it, it wasn't like that we were recording on multi-track and it could be mixed afterwards. It was that all the mixing decisions were being made during the day. And then at about 6 p.m., a whole load of people showed up that we'd managed to invite on a Monday evening. And we'd arranged pizza and beers. And, <laughs> we, you know, it was like a meet and greet. A lot of them were fans or they were friends of fans or they were friend, friends of people at the studio. So we had maybe 20 or 30 people um, and we let them take turns in coming into the room where we were actually playing or watching from the control room, which had a, a video feed so they could see what was going on and hear it as well. And uh, that was just enough for us to feel like there was some purpose to the performance. And we just banged through a, a selection of tunes that we we decided would work really well. And then I think we maybe recorded 16 and we chose 10 to fit on the record. And that ended up being a lot of people's favorite album of all the records that we've made over the, and we've made maybe, I don't know, 14 or 15 albums. Um, this one just really, I think it, it captured what people like about seeing us live the, the most, it, it, it had the right spirit about it. So th then it, a, a few years later, which was maybe last year or the year before, we we saw Nashville on the tour schedule again. And coincidentally, 
the Nashville show was on a Saturday. We had a Sunday off. There's almost never a show on a Monday. And we would be traveling somewhere else on the Tuesday. So we said, well, hang on. Let's, that was really easy last time. Let's do another one. <laughs> and, uh, and just do it in a day. And, it, and it's a good way to focus the, um, the creative energy. But it, it was a bit harder on the second one to choose the tunes because we, we, you know, we had to really think, does this song need re-recording? Because right. again, there was no new material for that record. Um, it was a question of what, what have we done to this arrangement of this tune that makes it worth recording again? And we, we found enough. And I, and I really like the second album because it's, it's got a different sound um, thanks to the keyboard situation because Joe Tatton, uh, our keyboard player, on the first album just played a Hammond B3. Um, partly because it was too complicated for him to be switching between organ and piano was to be mixed in advance. So that wasn't really an option. So this time we said, okay, let's forget the organ. We'll, we'll just do piano-based keyboards and we'll put them all through the same amplifier. He can control the level. And then that's a different sound to the record. So that's why if you play the albums back to back, there's a noticeable different feel about the second one because it's all piano-based rather than organ, you know, for aficionados who pay attention to these kind of things. Great albums. You also had Renewable Energy come out uh, as well, which is a great new album. And uh, I, I want people to know where they can come and see you. It's newmastersounds.com. They have a huge events page where you can kind of see where they're playing. You guys tend to play the states closer to the jazz fests and jam cruises. Is that correct? Uh, well, what, I, I guess if there's a pattern, we're usually we're usually playing on New Year's Eve somewhere and then we maybe go to Colorado to do ski dates. Um, and then if Jam Cruise is involved, it, Jam Cruise will be in the middle of that. Um, and then traditionally, we will always come back for two to three weeks um, with, with Jazz Fest, second weekend being the first weekend. Um, and then we do a few things in the summer and we usually do a fall tour. And this year we're doing... Slightly earlier than usual, we're coming out on uh, September 26th to play in Atlanta, 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 um, <laughs> Atlanta, uh, and we're doing. So we're doing a cluster of shows at Atlanta, Charleston, Asheville, um, and then a couple of days off. Then we fly to the West Coast and we do a cluster of dates there. So we do Seattle, Portland, and Bend. Um, then some more travel back into the middle. And I think we're doing, uh, Salt Lake city, Boulder, Denver is another cluster, then a little bit of a gap. And then we're doing some shows in the Midwest. Um, and we, the Midwest is probably the place that we've played least over, over the, the years. Um, I'm not quite sure why that was, but, uh, we do, we, we do get fans sort of saying, why don't you ever come to the Midwest? Well. We are coming to the Midwest. We're playing uh, Cincinnati, Chicago, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. I believe those are the four Midwest states. 
Um, but it's really hard to get everywhere, as you know, because it's such a huge country. Sure. And the economics of touring at our level um, just mean that we have to be really careful about where we go because sometimes we can end up going somewhere and it'll end up costing us several thousand dollars instead of making us ten thousand dollars yeah not not ten thousand dollars but just you know you look at the dates and then you have to look at the economics and how how much is it going to cost to get there how much is it cost to stay there how are we getting there where's the gear coming from all these boring things that um (laughs) are of of a concern to us when we're trying to set it up and then i do we, then we'll announce the tour dates that, that our booking agent has managed to put together. And there's always people just saying, How, hey, why don't you come here? And um, it's like, oh, it's lovely that they want us to come there. But they don't understand just how many pieces have had to move uh, on this three-dimensional jigsaw. Yeah. That's or chessboard or whatever, just just to make this happen. And it's like, um, it's, yeah, it's really complicated. But yeah. that's what booking agents make their money from doing. Well, we worked with your booking agent, and I think a few years ago, we were able to grab you in between New Orleans and when you were going back down to South Florida for basically an eight-hour stay here, and you guys played one of our stages, and still one of the most memorable shows that we brought in for the area. A lot of people had no idea who you were. We packed the house, and uh, they're listeners now, and uh, we we added you uh, to 38 Radio. The minute we turned the switch on about five years ago, we're on our five-year anniversary right now, and uh, we've put on basically anything that makes sense. And you guys have always been on there. Uh, this is the selfish part of the podcast, Simon. Um, we're headed okay. to the UK in November. Uh, it in is November. A, it's yeah. an adult trip. Uh, it's just uh, two two uh, families, but there's no kids coming. It's our first trip in ten years without the kids. So nice. Yeah. So I uh, I have five selfish questions on traveling to the UK with the new master sound. Simon is going to be my travel agent here. <laughs> so what is the best pub in London? Oh, the best pub. Um, it could be a dive. Yeah. The, well, I mean, I it's not going to be able to help you. This isn't going to make very great radio. Um, but I, I, I've got the vague idea that there's a Oxford Street, which is the, the famous shopping street, right, that goes down the middle of Soho. Um, there's a venue at number 100 Oxford Street called the 100 Club. And it's legendary. And it's had all sorts of super famous bands there. And I think... It, was threatened with closure recently and Paul McCartney went and played there to save it from ruin. Anyway, I remember when we did a show there, we went around the corner in one of the little back streets in Soho and ended up in a kind of Spanish late night tapas bar, dive bar place. And it was just a crazy adventure because in London, nobody is from London. Right. And so you go into somewhere and you'll meet them and they'll have the story of where they're from and the adventure that got them there and um so although it doesn't help because i've got no idea what the place is called we'll find uh, it because i was quite drunk <laughs> i'll just ask simon was here is this where simon came yeah 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 that, they'll definitely remember me um and then there was another one in soho uh, around the corner from a club called the borderline and this one's quite exciting and again I'm not sure if I'll be able to have the information to get you there, or even if it still exists. But after we'd finished playing at the Borderline Club, which is another legendary little um, venue in a basement in Soho, there was a place that we were told about called the Blue Door. And you you go up onto the street from the club and walk down a bit, and there's just this house with a blue door, and it's maybe got a number on it, um, but it doesn't in any other way indicate that it might be a 
a hostelry. And you have to either just open the door and go in or knock on the door. And then downstairs is just, again, another one of these really unlikely little places that uh, makes no sense. And yet, just a place of, of unexpected adventure. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So, though, but but pubs, pub pubs. You should just be prepared to pay an absolute fortune for your drink in London, because um, even I live in the north, which is uh, uh, Leeds, in right. two hundred miles north of London, and it's always been a thing that people from Yorkshire, which is up here, when they go to London, they cannot believe how much it costs to buy a pint. Because London is crazy. You know, London's a bit like New York or San Francisco or something sure. in terms of the cost of everything. But are you going only to London or are you planning to? No. Yeah, so we're ending in London. We're uh, starting, uh, we land in Heathrow and we go straight to Brighton for two days. And then we're going to go to Lewis for two days for Bonfire Night, which is apparently legendary, right? Yeah, the 5th. Remember, remember the 5th of November. That's right. So we're staying there for two nights and then we're going to go up to Oxford for two days and then end with four days in London. Oh, perfect. So it's, yeah, it's still, it's the Southeast. Um, um, but yeah, you, I, those are all great places. I think you'll, if you've never been to Oxford before. No. Um, it, is, that, is that a new, right. Yeah. Cause I think you'll just be bowled over by the, the Harry Potterishness of the whole place. <laughs> you know, like all wood panels and ancient stuff and, and history, but with people living in it, just taking it all for granted. So uh, here's another question. One word that we should know before going, and it can be a bad word. Bollocks yeah. is a useful one. So um, when you say bollock, you're saying bullshit. That's right. So, oh, that that's bollocks, as in that guy's talking bollocks. Or, or if something bad, like you've just arrived at the station and you found out that your train is late, you could go, oh, that's bollocks. And right. That's another way of, like you might say, that's that's some bullshit, the train's late or something. So it can mean that it's something that's untrue, like a deliberate lie, that guy's talking bollocks, or just a bad thing in general. I could have almost predicted that would be the word that you were going to tell me because, <laughs> uh, is that totally accepted in England? You're not going to offend that many people, but you wouldn't you wouldn't say it to your grandmother or your, right. or your vicar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would, I would guess, but I would say that to my mum, and and it, you know, so it's it's a it's a class B swear word. Yeah, and we're perpetually offended about everything over here in the states. So I, I would imagine you could get away with it a little bit easier in the UK. So inappropriate way to use this would be when I'm at a pub and they bring me my beer tab, and I say, oh, 14 pounds for a pint of beer? That's bollocks." Is that <laughs> well? That that would that I I think that would that's be the kind of thing that I would say if I if they charged me fourteen pounds for a pint of beer. <laughs> what, what what is the going rate for a a pint of beer in London? Well, I think it might be as high as six or seven pounds now. But I I, I mean it's been a long time since I w I've gone into a pub and handed money over. And also these days we you guys don't have this so much, but we have contactless debit cards. Yeah, which are kind of dangerous. Which you just wave them at the machine and it's it gives a little tick and a beep and you don't even need to see how much it, it was that it charged you. They'll they, you know, they'll offer you a receipt, but right. you don't really want to bother usually. So then you become divorced from the price of things. Yeah. Um until you look at your statement, you know, a couple of weeks later and gasp think, in horror. I think we're all conditioned by that here because of a place called Disney World. 
<laughs> uh, what, which, which just rips you off left, right, and yeah. center. You just hand them your credit card and then you leave and they send you the bill. Uh, <laughs> all right, yeah. let's uh, quickly, let's go uh, food we should not eat while we're in the UK. Food you should not eat. Um, okay, well, I would just say, like, use use your common sense in terms of avoiding street meat. Um, <laughs> you, so you might have had several pints of overpriced beer and you're st- staggering out into the light and you're a bit peckish. You're realizing that you definitely can't sleep unless you put something in there to absorb all the beer. Sure. Try not to be tempted by, you know, some not very salubrious looking street vendor because <laughs> you don't know what's going on there but there are some great kebab shops and uh kebab is uh, you would say kebab right and the spelling is different in england because of the way it's pronounced so it's k-e-b-a-b pronounced kebab right yep, but that's it's the right. same thing same thing you know you get a, a pita bread and some salad and some meat from that bizarre thing that rotates that <laughs> it, but they scrape the meat off it and, and it can be delicious so they some of those places are great I and mean, there are a lot of them in london that's um, uh, i would that's, that's I strongly great. advise go do go for a curry because there's yeah. loads of really great indian and bangladeshi and pakistani food um that's kind of like our national cuisine now in so, the, the, the same way that you guys have mexican food as your national cuisine that's totally true. And so number four might be the number one most important uh, rule when visiting the UK. Stay away from street meat, whether it's human or an actual food. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, last thing, uh, one thing that you would highly recommend doing in the UK, it doesn't have to be London. It just needs to be a UK thing that if we were to leave and not do this one thing, uh, we'd, we'd miss out. If you can get into... I may maybe go to a really go to a cheap supermarket, yeah, uh, as in grocery store, and just get yourself a, a, a trolley, as we call them. You would call it a shopping cart, and uh, just wander around eavesdropping on on uh, like old ladies having conversations, because I think you'll find that quite entertaining. That's going to happen. That's a great <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> Because right. the, 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 yeah, the kind of language they'll be using will be so, so unfamiliar, especially because you'll be in different regions as well. So, yeah, I hope, that, I hope that turns out to be fun. Is there an app for that on iPhone that I could kind of walk <laughs> around and be like, oh, she said. <laughs> yeah, a translation app. That's funny. All right. That's Simon with the new Master Sounds. We're watching your schedule in 2020. Uh, We need to get you back down here to the beach. And we want you to stay longer than eight hours this time, Simon. Yeah, that was all about the driving. That that was one time when we did did, uh, drive. And uh, I remember getting there and you put us in a really nice beach house that we didn't get to enjoy. It's okay. It's okay, but I, I can make that happen again, and we'll uh, we'll try and start talks now to find a stage for you and make a big deal out of it. But give you guys a full day of doing new master sound things around our 30A area, and I'll make sure to supply you guys with the best Bloody Marys that we have. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yes, please. I, I accept. All right, Simon. Thank you so much, and we look forward Thanks, to seeing sorry. you guys on the road. Great talking to you. Bye bye now. Thanks, Simon. They have a ton of albums to choose from. Start with the Nashville Sessions, then find a nice bottle of wine, maybe a cigar, and turn on live from San Francisco. Their live albums are blazing and definitely catch them live. One of the tightest bands you'll see, and Eddie Roberts is quite the guitarist. 
and the drummer's pretty good too. Thanks again, Simon. We're going out with one of our favorite songs from their live from San Francisco album. Here's the new Master Sounds on the 30A Show.
Shunk Gully on 30A. Winner of the 30A Hotspot Award for Casual Dining and Best Oysters. ShunkGully.com. The 30A Show, your beach happy podcast. Brought to you by 30A Cottages and Concierge with properties in Rosemary Beach, Seacrest, Seagrove, Seaside, and Watercolor.